The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. We're continuing in our teaching through the Gospel of Matthew as we've been in now several months, and we'll continue the rest of the year in, in the Gospel of Matthew. And today, um, we're going to go to Matthew chapter 17, to a passage that is commonly known as the Transfiguration. Jesus' Transfiguration on the mountain, where he transforms before his disciples. And so, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led him up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one of the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does not come, and he will rest- Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. And the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. We come to a unique passage in Scripture, one that I mentioned is is referred to as the Transfiguration. And let's be honest, uh, it's really this kind of event that we we come to expect to read in the Bible. It's this kind of event, this kind of supernatural, amazing stuff that we come to expect as we read the Bible and and really don't come to expect anywhere else. So see, if we saw, if we read a story like this anywhere else, it would be shocking. But when we open up our Bible and read a story like this, Right? They're on a mountain. Jesus transforms in front of them. He becomes like the sun. He shines like the sun. His, his clothes are even changed, and it, it becomes like a shining light. There's two ghosts, that, you know, two visions that appear uh, before, next to Jesus, Elijah and Moses. A cloud envelops them, and from that cloud, God speaks to them. God speaks from heaven to these people. And then they just go down from the mountain as if nothing has ever happened. It's the kind of event that we come to expect when we read the Bible. This is so much a Bible story. It would be odd to hear this in the morning news. We would would be shocked to hear of something like this, but I don't want this to lose its oddness. Because when we open up our Bible, we come to know, we come to realize that the Bible is going to say things like this, but don't let it lose its oddness. Don't let it lose its strangeness, because this is very strange. It's very odd. It's strange, and I I want it to be strange so that we can understand how strange this is and what it really means. We'll see in this passage, as we work through it, one, the misconception, and then we're going to see the proclamation from God, and then we're going to see the expectation that we should be longing for. First, let's look at the misconception in this passage. The misconception happens with Peter. 
he reads the situation totally wrong. He says, this is a big deal, Jesus. This is great. Let's do this. Let's make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And as Peter is telling of his amazing idea, the voice of God interrupts him and says, be quiet, Peter. Those are my words, but more or less. He interrupts Peter as he was speaking. Matthew goes out of his way to let us know that as Peter is telling of his brilliant idea, God interrupts him. If only God would interrupt us like that when we were doing stupid and foolish things. Just stop it. Just stop what you're saying. Stop what you're doing. I'm reminded of uh, Star Wars Episode Six, right? Return of the Jedi, uh, where at the end of the movie, um, you know, the, right after the Death Star is destroyed again for the second time and the galactic civil war is over and the galaxy celebrates and during the celebration, Luke Skywalker sees a vision as he goes off into the woods. As he contemplates all that has happened, he sees a vision and there are three visions before him. His father, Anakin Skywalker, his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then that that, you know, that alien Jedi master, Yoda. And he's just seeing, he's just enjoying this vision, and, and, and Leia, Leia comes up, and, and, and then they go on with their life as if nothing happened. So this is exactly like that movie, this passage, okay? <laughs> if you, maybe not exactly like it, but the background is incredibly important. If you watch the last five minutes of Return of the Jedi, and you saw this vision, you would have a lot of questions. You would say, who are these people? Why are they important? And what does that mean for the plot of the story? Well, in that way, this is really like this. If we just read this passage, we see these visions, we hear the voice of God, and we say, wow, that was really interesting. And yet we don't know the story. We don't look at the background. Then we have questions too. Who are these people? Why are they important? What does it have to do with the story? And what does that mean for me? You see, in fact, if we just watched even episode six, the last five minutes, we'd have to watch the whole movie. And even that, we'd have to watch episodes four and five. One to three, you don't really need to watch. But four, we would need to, read, we would need to watch four, five, and six to understand it more fully. So likewise, there's a lot going on in this passage. We need to know more about this strange and unique event by looking first at the men who are standing with Jesus that appear, Moses and Elijah. First, what's significant about Moses? Well, Moses, as you know, is most famous for, for being God's, God's man to go and rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. And he, he parted the Red Sea and he, he received the Ten Commandments from God. Pretty good resume for Moses, right? Moses is great. He did all these things, God used him to do amazing things to bring redemption to his people. And here's how the events unfold when Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments. He goes up to the mountain and Yahweh, as God is called in the, in the Old Testament, he descends on that mountain in a cloud, similar to what we see here on this mountain. He descends in a cloud, and he stands with Moses on the top of that mountain. And Moses is there on the top of the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights with God. The Bible tells us that he's with God, talking with God. God stands there with Moses for 40 days, and they are just talking together. And Moses is receiving this instruction from God. And every time after this, Moses would meet with God, his skin would glow and it would radiate like the sun. Moses comes down the mountain after receiving the Ten Commandments, and everyone is like, Moses, look at your face. And he doesn't realize it, but his face is glowing because he was in the presence of God. He reflected the glory of God. He was radiant. Like Jesus is transfigured here, Moses is transfigured by his face is glowing because he's reflecting the glory of God. Some, similarly, like if you had a, 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 a metal 
a stick in the fire, in the hot ambers, you pull it out and it's, it's glowing red because it has been in this fire, but then soon it, it wanes and it goes back to its natural color, but every time you put it back in there, it would, it would burn and, and heat up and light up because it was in the presence of the fire. Moses was reflecting God's glory because he had been with him. Being in the presence of his glory, he glows with the glory of God. Similar story there on that mountain as it is on this mountain. What about Elijah, the man on the other side of Jesus? As Moses represents the law of God, Elijah represents the prophets of God. A prophet's main role is to proclaim God's glory. And Elijah challenged the prophets of the false god Baal on top of a mountain, on Mount Carmel, another mountain. And on that mountain, it was Elijah against 450 false prophets of a false god named Baal. And they agreed to a test. And Elijah said, let's have a test. Let's see which God is the one true God, your God, Baal, or my God, Yahweh. So here's the test. We're both going to have an offering. We'll pre present an offering to God and we'll call down fire. Each of us will call to our God and ask him to burn up this sacrifice. And whichever God does it, that's the true God. And they said, we agree. And so the, the worshipers of Baal went first. And they made an offering and they prayed to their God and they called down fire from their God, and nothing happened. It was silent and nothing. And this is what Elijah says. I mean, seriously, this is how great the Bible is. Elijah says, maybe he's going to the bathroom. Maybe God's taking a leak. That's what he says. Maybe that's why he's not here. And he says, let me try. And he made an offering, and he said, you know, it's, gonna be, it's hard for, you know, it's for fire to burn up an offering as it is. Well, let's douse this with water. He completely covers this, fire, this offering with water, and he calls to Yahweh, and, and a pillar of fire comes down from heaven, consumes all of the offering, and even evaporates all the water that was poured on it. Proving that Yahweh is the one true God. More could be said about these two men, obviously, but here's the significance. Their story reveals the backdrop of Matthew 17, the story of of Moses and the story of Elijah. God used Moses to represent the glory of God through the law, and Elijah he used to represent his glory through the prophets. This is all about the glory of God. It's all about knowing the glory of God, the weight of God, the significance of God, the importance of God, the voice of God. How important is God and what, what kind of allegiance should we give to him? Is he the one true God? God is using Moses and Elijah to say, yes, he is. This is the one true God who is deserving of all allegiance and all praise and all honor and worship. And on this mountain, we see that God is still demonstrating his glory. But this time, it's very different. You see, this one is very different. Where Moses and Elijah, they pointed to the glory of God. They pointed to God's glory. Jesus is the glory of God. And this is where Peter missed it. See, Peter said, this is great. Three people who are pointing to the glory of God. Moses and Jesus and Elijah. Let's have three tents. See, this is where Peter was misunderstanding. He had a misconception. And he put Jesus on this level field with these other men that were doing great things for the glory of God. He looks at these heroes of the faith and he puts Jesus right among them. He sees these three as equal in pointing to the glory of God. And God says, Peter, stop talking. Jesus is not pointing to the glory of God as these men did. Jesus is not mirroring the glory of God or reflecting the glory of God the way that these men did. Jesus is the glory of God. He is the bodily um, embodiment of the glory of God. He is God's glory. 
The brilliance of God, the radiance of God is not being represented in things or through events, but it is coming out of a person, out of Jesus, out of a man, out of a human being. Hebrews 1.3 says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This means that, that Jesus Christ is the exact expression of the radiance and beauty and brilliance and majesty and truth and glory and nature of God. There is no other way, no better way to see the glory of God more perfectly, more holy, more completely than by looking at Jesus. You see, Moses and Elijah were never meant to do that. They were always pointing. They were always saying, hey, look at God's glory. Look at God's glory. And Jesus is saying, if you want to see God's glory, you have to understand me. You have to know me. You have to look at me. Jesus is, is not just one more person in your life among many qualified people who point you to God and help you to know God. He's the glorious God to which everything points in all of creation. And if it doesn't point to Jesus, then it's wrong. If our ideas don't point to Jesus, if it doesn't point to him, if our hopes don't point to Jesus, if our attitudes, behaviors, and actions, and dreams, and hopes, and fears, if they don't point to Jesus, then those things are misplaced and they are wrong. What does it mean? It means that there's absolutely nothing more significant in life. There's absolutely no opinion that matters more than that of Jesus. I don't know how the Bible and, how, and, and Matthew could help us understand this better. And I think this is the perfect way to do it. I don't know how the Bible could demonstrate this better, uh, a better way that Jesus is not like Moses and not like Elijah or any person who has come uh, than by God telling Peter to shut up. <laughs> There's no better way for God to do it. Say, Peter, stop talking. Listen to him. Peter's misconception leads into this proclamation where God speaks from this cloud. That's our second thing, the proclamation. God cuts into Peter's thinking with a, a bold adjustment. God does surgery on Peter's thinking. He does surgery on Peter's misconception to set it right. He corrects him, and this correction hangs on a simple phrase that we've heard before. We hear the Father, we hear his voice at Jesus' baptism say this identical thing where he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But here he adds this phrase, listen to him. I think theologian R.C. Sproul summarizes this point most clearly by saying, when God says something, the argument is over. When God speaks, the argument is over. When the disciples look up, Moses and Elijah are gone. This amazing event seems to end too quickly with many questions unanswered. Maybe you felt that. I've, I felt that as I read this passage, and I've read it before, and maybe you felt this as you read it. You say, but where did they go? Why did they leave? What else can we learn from them? What do they need to tell us? And I have two answers to those questions. Who cares? And it doesn't matter. I think that's the point of this because I'm left longing, but this is an amazing event. These are amazing men. I want to hear from them. I want to learn from them more. I want to hear them talking, the three of them talking together on the mountain because what an amazing thing. They look up and those two men are gone and we know nothing more and it really, and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because Jesus is there. Jesus is there and God says, listen to him. Moses and Elijah have gone away. They've done their job. Listen to Jesus. 
Listen to him as the supreme interpreter of Scripture, the supreme authority in your life. Moses and Elijah are supporting roles for Jesus. They supported him and did what they needed to do. Their work is over, and it doesn't matter where they went or what they say. Listen to Jesus. You know, for you, it, it, it might not mean much for us, but if you grew up in a Jewish home, if you grew up uh, um, in Judaism, Moses and Elijah, uh, hearing that Moses and Elijah are supporting roles to Jesus would make you gasp. It would make you angry. It would make you want to kill Jesus, and that's why he was killed. To hear that Moses and Elijah were not the point, but the ones that pointed to Jesus would make you very angry. Because this, this, these were their heroes. Because their, obeying them and listening to them uh, was to obey God and to listen to God. So I try to think, what is the equivalent for us? Because if, you know, if we didn't ra- weren't raised in, in, in Judaism or in a Jewish home and reading the Torah and learning about the law of Moses and, and, look, and reading about Elijah, what is the equivalent for an American, for, for a Christian, a Westerner? Uh, we really don't have people that are, are heroes like Moses and Elijah. I mean, we have sports figures and actors and actresses, things like that, that we look up to, maybe that we, that we wear their jerseys, things like that, but they don't so much form our identity. We... We have something else, I think, that that forms our lives. We have things like passions and ambitions and aspirations and hopes and fears. For us, I think our idols are not people like Moses and Elijah, but our identity is wrapped up in, in more in our aspirations. For instance, our identity is in our passions, and we say things like this. We say, my life is in focus when I'm doing what I love. My life is in focus when my work is satisfying, and if I can get to a place in my life where my work is satisfying to me, then, 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 I, then my aspirations will be complete. Our identity sometimes is, is formed in our family. We might say, my life is in focus, and my life is finally as it should be when I have a, a spouse and two and a half kids and a dog at home. You see, that's my goal, and if I can get to that, then my life is really on the right track. My life is on a good trajectory if I have that family. Our aspirations might be in our freedom. We might say things like this, my life is in focus when I am my own boss dictating how I should spend my time and my life. I've really reached that point in my life when I get to do what I want with my career, with my desires, with my hopes. And those become our idols. Those become the things that form us and those become the things that shape us and influence us. And like Peter, God wants to cut into our thinking. He wants to do surgery on our thinking and do some surgery on us, just like he did with Peter by saying, when it comes to Jesus, all of those things must assume a supporting role. And if those things were taken, if those things decrease, we might say, but where did those things go? Those are my hope. Those are, I want to learn more about those things. And God would say, listen to Jesus. Look at him. You see, when they, when they put their face on the ground out of fear and their eyes were closed, likely, and they opened their eyes, the only one there was Jesus. Jesus is not just another great teacher. He's not just another great leader. He's not just another great example. He's not just another great aim for your life. He's not just another great category to pursue. Man, I've got my family. I've got my career where I want it. I've got my friends. I've got my home. And I've got my faith. And all those things are just really clicking right now. God wants us to see as Jesus is the glory of God, that he is most influential. All of those other things flow out of relationship with Jesus. Jesus isn't just another thing. 
He isn't another ball to juggle. Do you let God interrupt you? Do you let God interrupt you like, like Peter was interrupted? By interrupting Peter, God's telling us every voice, every message, every idea must assume a supporting role when it comes to what Jesus says. Do you let Jesus interrupt you? I saw a headline this week uh, from a parody website. It was meant to be a joke, but I thought it was incredibly profound. It said, man sitting literally three feet from his Bible prays and asks God to speak to him. See, it's supposed to be funny because it's, we've been in those times, God, would you speak to me? Would you let me hear your voice as we're three feet away from our Bible not opening it? And we say, well, I guess God's not going to speak to me and I guess I'll just read my Bible. You see, it's funny. You could read it. It's on Babylon B. Go do it. Bookmark that website. Um, do you let God interrupt you? Do you let him speak to you? Do you let his voice speak to you? Do you, do you hear what Jesus says and do you say, this is, this is my authority. This is what influences me most. Everything else in my life is going to take a supporting role to what God says. Sometimes we come quickly to God to speak and to say a bunch of things and to say how we want our life to go. And we tell God our plans like Peter did. God, here's my plan. Here's what we'll do and it'll be really great. And God wants to say, I'm not going to let you finish. I want you to listen. I want you to listen. If Jesus is the only one standing, he's the glory of God. If we're, if we're commanded to listen to him, then, then if anything we believe or know uh, contradicts what he says, then those things are wrong and Jesus is right. Do you let God interrupt you? Do you let him speak to you? Do you even listen? Are you listening carefully to what he says? Well, there's this misconception, this proclamation from God, and now this expectation. Jesus is tying this, this glorious event, this unique event of the transfiguration, he's tying it into another glorious event. In fact, it's the most glorious event. He immediately points to another event, his, his death. Jesus points in this moment, in this transfiguration, as they're walking down the mountain, he points to the cross. He says, don't tell anyone about this until I raise from the dead, in verse 9. What a sentence that is. What a sentence. Think about that. Hey, guys, don't tell anybody that this happened until I raised from the dead. What a sentence. Does Jesus seem like the kind of guy who doesn't have a handle on life? Or does he seem like the kind of guy who is king over creation, governing all circumstances, sustaining all life, and doing all things for the glory of God and the good of those who love him? What a casual thing to say, hey, guys, don't tell anybody about this until I raised from the dead. He's... And I'll tell you, this is, think about that sentence. Jesus is saying, I'm orchestrating my life. I know what is going to happen. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer at the hands of men. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to raise from the dead. I've got it under control. I know what I'm doing. The Apostle Luke tells us this same story, but he adds a little more detail that I think is helpful in Luke 9. Verse 30, he says, Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to, of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Amazing. Moses, Elijah, Jesus, all talking. And what are they talking about? They're talking about Jesus' death in Jerusalem. Hey guys, great to see you. Welcome. Yeah, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to die at the hands of, of sinners. I'm going to die for sinners. I'm going to raise again from the grave. And they're thinking, man, this is, what are they saying? What are they talking about? I don't even know. I don't even want to fabricate it because it's just too great. I can't imagine that conversation. 
How amazing this is. Does Jesus seem like the kind of guy who's just going with the whim on a whim, that he's just going with life as it carries him along? Or does it seem like he actually has everything in control, that he's Lord of all, that he's King of the universe, that he is the glory of God? What is Jesus' most glorious moment? You know, some would say this transfiguration, this beautiful event that happens. Others might say his resurrection. But this passage suggests that the event that demonstrates God's glory the most is the cross. The most beautiful event, the, most, the event that is most worthy of talking about, when you have a moment with these two visions, these two ghosts of Elijah and Moses, what are you going to talk about with Jesus that you've been wanting to talk about forever? They talk about his death. Isn't that fascinating? The event to which all of creation points, the most glorious moment, the moment in time that demonstrates most perfectly who God is, is when Jesus, when God becomes killable, when Jesus gives his life, when he empties himself of his glory. I'm going to ask you a question I hope that will change or, or reorient your life, or reorient your thinking. Here's the question. What do you expect God to do for you in your life? What do you expect him to do for you? What are you waiting for him to do that he has not yet to do? What do you want him to do that you feel is undone? What are you asking him for and praying for? What do you want him to do? How do you expect your life to go if you follow Jesus? If God were to ask you this question, what do you expect from me? What might you respond with? You see, God's most glorious moment and most glorious work in your life will not be how to, how to make your life shine, but how he applies the work of Jesus to your life and transforms you to be more like Jesus. His most glorious work in you will be in making you more like him. His most perfect work in you will not be making your life shine and making your life great and giving you all the things that you desire to give. His most glorious work is by applying his death to your life in every moment. It's like this painting, this artwork that God is creating. He gives us this depiction in scripture and, 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 and that Jesus is creating, he's making a new creation and he's changing us from one degree to another. He is changing us more into the image of Christ. And when Jesus returns, he will perfect us. And how will we be? We will be perfectly like him. Is that your goal? Is that your goal in life to be more like Jesus? Or is your goal in life to be more like you or maybe a better version of you or a perfect version of you? What is your goal in life? Is your goal in life for God to give to you and to bless you and to make you happy? Or is your goal in life to be like Jesus? Is your goal to decrease and, the, and that Jesus would increase in your life? That is God's goal for you. God's most perfect and glorious and good goal for you is to transform you more and more into the image of Jesus. And in fact, Paul uses that same word that is used here when Jesus is on the mountain and he's transformed. Paul uses that same word that he says that we would not conform to this world, but that we would be transformed and renewed in our thinking according to Christ. Our whole life, our God's purpose for us is to be transfigured 
more and more into Christ. And eventually we will be glorified. We will be perfect in our body, in our thinking, in our intellect, in our, in our spiritual sense, in an emotional sense, in a relational sense. We will be like Jesus. We will know him fully as he fully knows us. We're meant to magnify God's glory. If you've spent any time at, at all with us as a, as a church, or simply if you've done a little homework to figure out what's important to us, uh, you come across the phrase, magnify God's glory. Magnify is the first of three words that are bolted above the sanctuary doors when you walk in, and it stands for magnify God's glory. It describes our chief aim and mission as a church. Because Jesus is the glory of God, Holy Cross is primarily not an institution aimed at helping us find serenity, helping us uh, change our behaviors, helping us find community and friends, but to magnify God's glory, to be made more and more into the image of Jesus as we trust in him, receive his work on the cross, put to death sin in our life, repent of sins and ask for forgiveness, and be more like him, trusting in his work for us. Trusting that it is his work on the cross for us that makes us right with God. That we are not made right with God based on our record or our character, but we're made right with God because of the grace of God. Poured out for us, shown to us at the most glorious moment in all of history, the cross. Jesus is walking down this mountain and he has his eyes on Golgotha, this little hill, this little mountain outside of Jerusalem. Jesus walks down the mountain, and what he talks to his disciples about is Golgotha, the place where he's crucified. The most glorious moment where he pours out his glory, empties himself of his glory, where he is not shining, but he becomes killable, where God becomes killable. Why? He empties himself of his glory so that we can behold his glory and become like him. In spite of our failure, in spite of our losses and our weakness, he does this. Even in the most amazing moment of the transfiguration, the disciples are being prepared to embrace the reality of the cross, that our redemption, that our glory, that our salvation would, would be accomplished only through Jesus suffering and dying. The key theme in Matthew, one of the key themes in, in Matthew as it's repeated often throughout his gospel, is that we want so badly for God's glorious work to be completed right now. God, thank you for all the work that you did. Like, just give me that life. Make this world better. Make my life better. We want all the glory right now. But Matthew shows us that the crown comes only after the cross. And Jesus is communicating this to his friends. Imagine you were like the disciples there on that mountain, Peter, James, and John, and you saw this happen. You might think as you go down this mountain, things from here on are going to be amazing. Right? You just heard God speak audibly. You just saw two men that are dead, alive, next to Jesus. You just saw a cloud come down and God's presence dwell with you. You just saw all this and now you're going down the mountain. You're thinking this is the beginning of an amazing life. And then Jesus goes to the cross and dies. And he tells them, and even he tells his own disciples, that before glory comes, before the crown, I have to endure the cross and so do you. The splendor of eternal glory with God with Jesus for the believer comes only after his sanctifying work in our life. And that happens continually as, we gracious, as he graciously applies the work of Jesus to us every single day. This means there's no Christianity without the cross. There's no glory without suffering that comes 
from God pruning us. There's no glory without God pruning us and, and convicting us of sin and us repenting of sin and him applying the work of, cross of Christ to us by saying that Jesus died for your sins and trust in his work for you and be renewed in your salvation, in the joy of your salvation. There's no glory without the painful process of picking up our cross and following Jesus. Our life is in focus then when our aim is on him. Our life is in focus when our aim is on Jesus, not on our circumstances and how well things are going. Our life is not in focus when everything's going great, when our family, our work, and our life, and our plans, everything's going great. Our life's in focus when it's aimed at Jesus. When we see God transforming us into the image of Christ. If things are going hard in your life right now, God is using this. He intends to use every moment and this moment, those painful moments, not to remove you from that painful process, but to make you more like Christ. What does that look like? What, is it, what, what, what area needs to be pruned? What needs to be transformed? Where do you need to shine with the glory of God in your life that seems dull or maybe absent? God desires that work of sanctification to happen in the very situation in your life where you feel God absent or indifferent. The glory of God often means weight, but it also, it also means beauty. It also means beauty. And God telling us that to listen to Jesus, there is something there that is incredibly profound and weighty and burdensome, enough to make the disciples just hit the deck in fear there's something weighty about it when God says, listen to Jesus. It means that what he says, we must obey. And if we don't obey, that there is discipline. He commands obedience. But in telling us to listen to Jesus, God is also showing us something beautiful. What is glorious? You know, it's something that, is, that takes our breath away. It's something that is, it's, how do you describe, hey, what, what, define beauty. It's one of those words that you can't define it without using the word. Oh, it's something that's beautiful. Use it in a sentence. That sunshine was beautiful. That, that, that sunrise is beautiful. That, that canyon is beautiful. A child is beautiful. At the heart of all that matters in life is not a set of ideas, it's not a set of principles, but as a love relationship with Jesus. So God is showing us something beautiful by saying, listen to Jesus. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. He is saying at the heart of your life, at the heart of all that matters, is not following rules, but listening to this man and having a relationship with him. It is a love relationship with a person who is alive today. It is a relationship with him. Jesus lost his glory so that the very glory of God could come into our life and transform us from sinful people who we are and being transformed more and more into the character of Jesus. That is a beautiful thing. And we were able to say, you know, I'm not the man or woman I used to be. And by God's grace, I'm not the man or woman that I desire to be in Christ. But God is sanctifying me. He's changing me. He's making me new every day. It's beautiful because no matter what you're going through, God desires to make it beautiful. He, makes, he desires to take that dead thing, that ashes. He desires to take what is broken in your life and struggling, and he desires to make it beautiful. He makes you new. He promises to restore all things. Be patient. Be patient with his work in your life. He is working. He is speaking. 
Listen to him, not because he commands it, but because it is good. Be patient. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking to us every day in the person of Jesus Christ and through your word. Thank you for preserving for us the words of Christ, the, the logos, the, the incarnate word in your scriptures. Help us to feel the weight of your glory that commands obedience, but help us also to see the beauty of your glory. The beauty that you're doing work in us, that you're changing us. Help us to, to not come to just expect you to fix our lives and to make us happier and healthier and more adjusted to all the challenges in life, but let our agenda be your agenda, which is to make us like Jesus. It's a hard thing to get our heads around. It's a painful process because it leads us to our own cross where we put to death sin. It leads us to suffering as we deny ourselves of our flesh and our impulses. It, it leads us to discipline as you continue to prune us. But we thank you for your grace that we are not so far gone that no one is, is hopeless and that, and that no one is good enough where we don't need you, but help us to be dependent on you. We are dependent on you every day. We demonstrate that today as we take this meal. We demonstrate our dependence on you as we take the, your body and your blood, broken and spilled for us. We thank you for this meal that's been prepared for us in Jesus Christ. We pray for our time together as we eat and drink with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.